From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Their son took his own life. Then they remembered... That story. Where is that story? Mm. And we found it on his computer. It was the story of a boy with a heart of gold who's taunted because of his looks. It really is talking about bullying based upon some kind of difference. The difference could be the clothes you wear, that you're overweight, race, ethnicity, sex orientation, any kinds of thing. That's why we talk about it had a deeper meaning. And so after their son's death, they had this story published. Kids across the country have read it and loved it. As a mom, that made me so proud. It made me so proud. And that we're still talking, adults are talking about Clayton's book. I couldn't be more proud. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. After a lifetime of being bullied, a young man is given a chance at immediate acceptance, even renown, but only if he's willing to do the unthinkable. The Mask is a short story inspired by the life experiences of its author, Clayton Adams of Aurora, whose own life ended much too soon. Clayton's parents are Spike Adams and Jamie Schimmel, and welcome to both. Oh, thank you. Thank you. A note that our conversation will focus on suicide. Clayton died seven years ago at age 21. Jamie, I understand you found the manuscript for this short story, The Mask, on his computer about two weeks after his death. Was that part of your searching for answers to what had happened? Or? Um, we knew that he had written the story when he first wrote it. He was about 16, and... It was such a remarkable story. I, I remember exactly where I was when he gave it to me. I read it, mm. and I was so like, wow. The story is about someone who is an outcast who's not accepted because of his appearances yes. and is bullied as a result. Yes. And he, he's always been a writer. He wrote from a young age, even over the holidays, he wrote stories for a Christmas present, and he would read them. And his aunts and uncles and cousins would be like, sign this, you're going to be famous one day. So I knew that he had the book, and just after he passed away, remembering lots of things, and we thought, that story, where is that story? Mm. And we found it on his computer. And how was that moment? I found it. And Spike, as soon as we found it, the first thing he said is, I'm publishing that. I'm publishing that, Spike. Why were you convinced of that? Once I found that, that story, I mean, it was so beautiful and I thought so powerful. I felt that I needed to do something as a tribute to Clayton, to honor his memory, to give him his voice again, mm. to give him the kind of legacy that he didn't live long enough to give himself. Now, he has a legacy, of course, with family and friends. I said, but the thing that he loved most in terms of writing, that's what I thought would be an absolute wonderful tribute. And essentially, I just set off on an odyssey trying to do it. I mean, I didn't know anything about publishing or anything else. I said, I got a manuscript. I knew we might have to do some editing. And I thought, in order to really make the story go, I'm going to have to find an illustrator. So I searched for illustrators and then found Rohan Daniel Eason, his illustrations. Everyone who sees these said they're beautiful. You know, they remind me, the illustrations, of Edward Gorey. I don't know if you know Edward Gorey. Yes. The kind of whimsical and, yes. and macabre. Mm -hmm. artist. Yes. And, you know, I think that those are qualities that this story shares, whimsical and macabre at the same time. Did you see it as an object lesson, as a fable, do you think, this particular story? I did. You know, we call it allegorical mm. because we thought that it has such deeper meanings, although on the face of it, as you described it, 
It really is about a misshapen and ugly boy who is taunted and teased and tormented by village bullies. He's called the village idiot, the freak, a monster, and how he wants to have a a wonderful life. This is something that he thinks about, but something that he could really never achieve. And essentially, he comes across this object in the earth and uncovers it, and it's a mass, and it makes a Faustian bargain with me. Mm -hmm. And so in the face of it, you can say, really, it's about someone who is just an outcast. You could describe a person as maybe with a disability. But I said, it's so much more than that. It really is talking about bullying that comes about when you target someone, when you make them a victim based upon some kind of difference. The difference could be the clothes you wear, that you're overweight, race, ethnicity, sex orientation, any kinds of things. That's why we talk about it had a deeper meaning. Of a universal quality, because in, in a way what you're saying is that we are all vulnerable to this. Yes, And so, Jamie, at the time when you first read this story, years before Clayton took his life, did you have a sense that it was his own story, that it was something of a cry for help? Mm, No, I I don't think it was a cry for help. Um, Since first grade, I I gave, uh, he actually has a twin brother, I gave the boys a journal and I said, if you're having strong feelings, strong emotions, you should write. You should put those emotions in a journal. And so since then, Clayton wrote all the time. We have a stack of notebooks and things. So I think he was always telling stories. Um, He loved it. He loved to write. The way I look at it, you know, I think Clayton took some very painful and ugly experiences in in his life. And he found a way for himself to take that pain and create art, to basically turn it into a story that meant something to him, where he could find uh, self-acceptance, validation for himself, um, where he could appreciate his own inner beauty and affirm himself. And essentially, it gave him a way to become in the story, the hero. So he took all, I thought, these aggregate day-in, day-out kinds of insults and dignities and uh, hurtful behavior, and he transcended it. He transformed it. There was much to transcend. You note in the afterward, the bullying, Mm -hmm. that he had struggled with depression, in particular that he was stabbed with a pencil. Yes, at school. Yes. I want to say that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that suicide now is the second leading cause of death for teens and young adults. Another agency finds that in 2021, almost one in three young adults experienced a mental, behavioral, or emotional health issue. Yes. And I think that the pandemic exacerbated this. What audience do you hope this reaches most. I mean, it has already been integrated into some school curricula in the Cherry Creek District, right, where Clayton went, but also on the East Coast. We'll talk about that a little later. But who who do you want to have this message reach, Jamie? Well, I'm a teacher. I've used it in my own classroom. I've shared it with colleagues. Um, Where do you teach? I teach in the Cherry Creek in School Cherry Creek. Okay. District. I hope there are many conversations that can be had, again, about differences, about being accepted. I love in the book the main character, Mill. He is the same character throughout beginning to end. And he doesn't I think put on airs. He doesn't. He could be revengeful. He is not. He has a pure heart. I think he does. And he is beautiful. Even before the Faustian bargain, as Spike says, uh, that actually transforms his physical self. You're saying Mm -hmm. there's inherent beauty. Mm -hmm. You know, could we read uh, perhaps the last paragraph or two of The Mask by your late son? Are you doing the honor, Spike? 
Yeah. Uh, yes, I think Jamie assigned that to you. <laughs> <laughs> You've been I volunteered. Said, I said yes, teacher. Okay. <laughs> yeah. you, you let me know. Okay. Mill made his way back up to his bedroom and hobbled toward his wife in bed. He didn't care what the others in the village would think or say. He only cared for how his wife would respond. She lay sound asleep, her face toward him. Mill shook Clara gently as he sat in the darkness. He quietly spoke to her. Clara, please wake up. It's me, Mill. Sleepily, she asked. What is it, honey? And she opened her eyes. Now, at this point, Mill has grown up. He's found a wife, uh, which may or may not be a function of his physical transformation, but of the beauty inside. Yes. And he has news to deliver to her. But this is where the story ends. It's an unfinished story. Is that how you'd describe it? No. No. <laughs> no, it's a it's a cliffhanger. Mm, okay. Intentionally. Okay, intentional. See, Clayton, when he wrote, he loved Ray Bradbury. He wrote Gooseberries. He he loved those Goosebumps. kinds of stories. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. Yes. Goosebumps. But Ray, Ray Bradbury, the great sci-fi author. Yeah, and yeah. he would you know things hanging. But what Clayton wanted to do and understand, someone described it. Who was it? Was a Kirkus Review described it as a superb open ending. Mm. And I think what Clayton wanted to do, he wanted to not end a story. He wanted to start a conversation. He wanted to bring people's attention to important social issues such as bullying, body image, and I think society's specious definition of beauty. And so this was his way that he could have people start talking about what does it mean to be beautiful? What mm. does it mean to be in a committed relationship? You know, when do you need to show courage? Do you need to show integrity? When do you need to show kindness? So he wanted to start a conversation and use that as a means for parents and teachers and others to get involved. And I think, as one person said, discussing some of the most elusive and valuable of uh, human values kindness, bravery, integrity, and commitment. We are talking about The Mask, a short story by Clayton Adams of Aurora. His parents had it illustrated and published after their son took his own life at age 21. More with Jamie Schimmel and Spike Adams after a break the trajectory of their grief in the seven years since Clayton's death, and their hopes for this book. If you or someone you know is struggling mentally, you can text TALK to 38255. That's TALK to 38255. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a role for everyone at Colorado Public Radio. You're already a listener. You may even be a member. Have you ever wondered about working at CPR? A nonprofit with a history that starts in 1970, CPR's news and music radio signals today reach over 90% of Colorado's population, while podcasts and online content reach people across the nation. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make this happen, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. Learn more at CPR.org careers. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Clayton Adams of Aurora loved to write poems, short stories. He was also bullied and suffered from depression. Seven years ago, when he was 21, Adams took his own life. Afterwards, his parents remembered a short story he'd written about a young man teased for his looks until he makes a deal with the devil and becomes as beautiful outside as he's always been on the inside. The story is called The Mask, and his parents have since published it and gotten it into schools. 
Let's rejoin my conversation with Jamie Schimmel and Spike Adams. We recorded the interview in December, and I asked Jamie, who's a teacher in Cherry Creek schools, how her students reacted when they read the story. The kids were kind of in awe. They were like, what? Wow. Very much taken with the book. Mm -hmm. And as a mom, that made me so proud. It made me so proud. And that we're still talking, adults are talking about Clayton's book. I couldn't be more proud. You know, um, I want to hearken back to the idea that he would write letters, poems to you as holiday gifts. Uh, I wonder if this is a particularly difficult time for both of you, if you have managed to reassign it in some way in your minds. For me personally, it's it's always hard, to be honest with you. I'm still grieving the death of, of Clayton, his loss. It becomes more intense, more profound, sometimes more painful. Uh, sometimes I think that the sharp and jagged edges of despair, you know, have been worn down a bit. Mm. But always when I go somewhere, he's with me. If we go out to dinner, I'm thinking about him sitting there smiling. If we go out to a movie, I'm wondering what Clayton might say, what he might think about it. Sometimes I sit and I'll have a conversation with him. I mean, I I loved him so. I love him so. And, and, and he's missed by the entire family. So... It's not incredibly difficult anymore. I know I'm healing. And I think, though, that honestly, I will be grieving forever. And that's okay. I made grief a companion, but I've also made my son a companion Mm. as well. This is my way of publishing this book so that Clayton can be known by the world so they can see how beautiful he is and the potential that he has. Spike, I appreciate you describing grief as not linear because I think that if we always look at grief as if every day will be a little better, we set ourselves up for some disappointment and we naturally have setbacks, but they're not setbacks. That's the course of grief, I think is that there are some hard days and there are some good days. And that maybe over the trajectory it gets better. Someone once described grief as a ripple in water, Hmm. that the initial death is the stone, and that as time goes on, the ripples get further apart. They're still there. Mm -hmm. They get a little bit further away. Um, That concentric circle widens. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So... I think, like Spike said, the grief will always be there. Some days are better days. Um, We can laugh, tell funny stories, and then out of the blue, you'll just kind of get a deep, sharp pain of grief, like, wow, that just hit me hard. Um, It occurs to me how important metaphor is and symbol is in understanding grief. mm -hmm. The visuals that you have shared about what it looks like, what it feels like, and how you deal with it. Um, I appreciate it. Um, Jamie, will you read a bit of a Christmas letter for yes. us? Clayton wrote this when he was 14. This was in at Christmas 2008. He, he wrote poems, stories, Christmas stories. And that was his aunts and uncles and cousins' uh, Christmas presents. So this one is called Do Not Forget. As we celebrate and have our feasts, do not forget those who have the least, those who are weak, those who are poor, those that come knocking this winter night at others' door. So as you eat and have your drink, take one minute to think about the old beggars on the street, the men and women overseas, the hungry children in impoverished countries. For blessed are we, God has given us much. Do your part and do unto others as others would do such. It's almost like a prayer. Kind of. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the, the brilliance at 14 of rhyming feast and least. 
<laughs> right? The, the bounty and then the lack and maybe evening that out. I wanted to ask you both about the connection between bullying and um, your son's suicide. We know, of course, there are any number of kids who are bullied who who don't complete suicide. I, I'm one of them. I was pretty terribly bullied as a kid. And I do remember thinking at times about ending my life um, just because it, it got so unbearable sometimes. What connection do you draw and how have you struggled with that? Because... In, in so many ways, this book is about starting a conversation around bullying. And Jamie, I'm particularly interested in your view as both a parent and teacher. And I feel like I have such an important role as a teacher, and yet my son was bullied. It was really painful, because I know if I was there, I would have protected him where I would want to put my feet in his shoes and be like, just do this, say this, mm. maybe, you know, fight back. But that wasn't Clayton. That wasn't his personality. He did choose humor to deal with things. But when you have kids who, this one kid in this one class, if it wasn't daily, it was definitely multiple times during the week, would clothesline him and knock his glasses off each day. And another kid picked him up and dropped him, and he hit his head on the water fountain. And as a teacher, now did this happen before the teacher came into the room? Possibly. Hmm. But the kids know when they can get away with things and when they can't get away with things. And unfortunately, Clayton was treated that way. Mm-hmm. Do you draw a connection between the bullying and his death? I think Clayton had, he did suffer from depression. So I think I never really connected the bullying with his death. Um, but I think there was a number of sad things or things that were heavy on his heart. Um, and it was a soup of things, really, then. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes the, the, so much sense, but I also think that there has to be such a searching in parents who lose a child for the thing. What, yeah. you know, what could I have done? What, what moment could I have intervened or changed? Clayton was very intelligent. He was very much into philosophy, um, economics also. Hmm. Um, I saw Clayton as being, having an intelligence that really didn't meet the kids that he, his peers, where they were. He often had conversations with older adults, like he was very much an old soul. Um, the conversations and things that he talked about or was interested in was not really the conversations that young people were having. So I think he also was kind of searching for his people. Mm. And I think it was hard for him to find his people. The question you ask is, is really uh, challenging because I've, I asked myself what role could have bullying played in his death. I remember a friend asking me one time, and I had to say honestly, I, I, I really don't know... <sighs> I know that bullying can create psychic wounds, emotional injuries. And when you talk about the body uh, keeps the score, I think is um, Van der Kork, that it's part of your experience and, and it is there. And he was subject to such physical violence. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so I can't rule it out. A, a part of me, after coming across some of uh, one of his writings one time, he was saying how much he was struggling. Essentially, he felt like crying. It was clear he didn't feel his life was going anywhere. He felt he had no friends. He felt he couldn't write. He couldn't concentrate. He wasn't involved in a relationship. He was living at home. I mean, it was just like this despair that he felt. 
But I never, in all the searches that I've done through his books, I haven't found any specific reference to bullying, but that doesn't mean that bullying wasn't there. And I just remember saying at the memorial service for Clayton that he took his life, but his mental illness killed him. Mm. Perhaps we can uh, wrap up on what you see as the future of the book. I made earlier reference to a connection on the East Coast yes. with, I think it's a librarian and educator there. Tell us this story mm-hmm. and where you think this is headed. All right. This is the exciting part. Uh-huh. This is really so wonderful. Bevan, the social warrior in Maryland. This is a librarian? Yes, yeah, she's a librarian. librarian. Yes, and I, she's a doctor, and she just said, use my first name, Spike. And she was the one who read to the eighth graders, and I have one of the letters, and if you want, I can read a, a portion of that. A letter that. from one of the eighth graders yes. who'd read The Mask by yes. your son. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you like me to well, read that? I would love it. Oh, okay. So this is something of a, a not a, quite a book report, but a reaction to the experience. Exactly. Uh, dear Spike and family, we are in the eighth grade. We recently had the luxury of reading your book, The Mass. We found it very inspiring, and we were able to connect to the character Mill. Our main takeaway was that you are beautiful, just the way you are, and that if the people around you can't accept that, then they are not worthy of your time, and you should find people who love you for you. How does that make you feel, Jamie? Proud, Mom. I love it. Jamie, are you still discovering his writing, or do you feel that you've seen what there is. I think we have probably seen what there is because Uh he was also a private person and this story he shared with us. It was in the evening and he just came and I was sitting on my bed getting ready to go to bed and he says, would you like to read this? And he sat on the bed next to me as I read it and it was this story. When you read it and you got to the end, it was like, What? Wow. Wow. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, it is a true pleasure being here. Jamie Schimmel and Spike Adams published their late son's short story, The Mask. Clayton Adams took his own life at age 21. If you or someone you know is struggling, the National Crisis Lifeline is 988 I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Matters continues shortly on CPR News and KRCC. Frasier, elevation 8,600 feet, gets below freezing on more than 300 nights a year. It's recorded a freeze for every single date of the year, and its growing season lasts just a week, thanks to cold air that gets trapped in the bowl-shaped valley where it sits. In 1956, Fraser called itself the Icebox of the Nation, eight years after International Falls, Minnesota adopted the title because there was money in it as a marketing tool. Meteorologists would say neither place deserves the slogan, but the rivalry persisted until International Falls paid Fraser $2,000 to drop its claim. International Falls got the trademark, then forgot to renew it. Fraser leaped on the opportunity, but was countersued. And though it ultimately lost the legal battle to be the icebox of the nation, it could compete with Alamosa and Gunnison to be the icebox of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Koblen Company. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Drug addiction and the crimes people may commit to fuel it are on the agenda as state lawmakers reconvene at the Capitol. We have to address the root causes to end these cycles. We have to do more to counter poverty and addiction. Addiction continues to be a plague and overdoses are tearing families apart every single day across the state. That is Senate President Democrat Steve Fenberg in his opening remarks this week. Given the numbers in Colorado, it's not a stretch to say that a drug overdose has or will occur in any of our circles. Now, we know Narcan can save someone who ODs, but I wonder, 
Where do I get it? What sort of training would I need? How would I administer it? And so I reached out to Lisa Rayville of the Harm Reduction Action Center. Last summer, she agreed to train me along with two other Coloradans who told me they were also curious. My name is Jolie Weatherspoon. I live in Westminster. My name is Sheree Garcia Cooper, and I live in Centennial, Colorado. I asked why they were interested. I mean, partly just because I like learning things, uh, but also I work in Lodo, so I've seen a lot of drug activity near overdoses. I've also had people close to me in my life that have overdosed, and being able to do something about that would be amazing. I've started hearing a lot more about it and how you know, it's been impacting people and the overdoses and whatnot. So I would like to carry it. I work in a field where I'm often in abandoned job sites. So there's oftentimes squatters there or evidence of squatters. Um, I also go to a lot of concerts. I mean, more so pre-pandemic, but there's a lot of stuff floating around at concerts too. And I feel like if I can be the person to help somebody, great. I think we all should kind of take this responsibility. You know, our health reporter was out at Red Rocks with fentanyl test strips and drugs people don't know contain fentanyl, contain fentanyl. So I think that's what you're getting at, Cherie. Correct. And let's learn more about our trainer. By the time she's done, you too will have the skills to intervene if you see someone overdosing. My name is Lisa Rayville. I'm the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center, Colorado's largest public health agency that works specifically with people who inject drugs and people who smoke drugs such as crack, meth, and fentanyl. And you are going to, is it fair to say, teach us to administer Narcan? Is it something that requires a class? It requires just a few minutes of training. What we do is talk about how to prevent an overdose first and foremost, and then how to recognize and respond. We are in the worst overdose crisis we've ever been in. It's a fentanyl overdose crisis, and it's a polydrug overdose crisis. Polydrug meaning? Polydrug meaning more than one drug is on board for the overdose. Oftentimes, drugs are synergistic, meaning it's not one plus one equals two, it's one plus one equals four. What is Narcan? It keeps people alive in the event of an opioid overdose. Again, fentanyl is an opioid, much like methadone, oxys, heroin. It is possible to keep people alive in the event of an opioid overdose. Paramedics and emergency departments have been using Narcan for over 40 years, which is really great if overdoses happen around paramedics or emergency department. It needs to be in the hands of people who use drugs first and foremost, as they're the true first responders, and then third parties. Anybody in the state of Colorado can carry naloxone and has been able to since 2013. So it wasn't always legal for everyday folk to carry Narcan? Correct. Correct. Um, It had to be prescribed to you before 2013 just to opioid users. But in 2013, we did pass a law at the Colorado State Legislature to limit civil and criminal liability so anybody in the state of Colorado can carry it. And now they've passed that law in all 50 states. Anybody in the United States can carry naloxone. Would that be something that I would have been able to get through TSA? when I took my trip to New York, because I did see something in New York that could have possibly, that was the other reason I reached out to you. You recently took a trip, and your question is, could you travel with this in clear security? Absolutely. This is a prescription medicine. So when you leave here, we will have your name on it so you can carry it anywhere that you want to, and you should have it on you. Oh, you'll you'll give us some today. Oh, heck yeah, Ryan Warner. I see. Right now, it is a prescription drug, so you can get it out of pharmacies. Most major insurances cover it. You just have to pay your copay or out of harm reduction organizations. Mostly, uh, you know, I have to prioritize my naloxone and Narcan for people who use drugs, but when Ryan Warner calls, Ryan Warner calls. Oh, that's a nice thing to say. If I were to get a prescription for it to carry, would that be a red flag to my insurance company? that I might be a user? It shouldn't. We've been able to kind of normalize it now that anybody in the United States should be carrying it. Do you get a prescription from your doctor? Do you just walk up to the pharmacy and say, I need some Narcan? In 2015, we passed standing orders. So you don't need a prescription from your physician. You can walk into these 470 pharmacies today in the state of Colorado and get access. Much like I'm able to push it out to you today, I don't need a physician on site. I'm working under a physician's standing orders. I would like to mention that law passed in 2015. All 100 state legislators voted in support of it, and they never agree on anything. And they said, if you want Narcan today, you should have Narcan today. You should have Narcan today. Wow. And though the prescription might be in my name, the understanding is that I might use it to administer on a complete stranger. 
Correct. It's very difficult to Narcan or Naloxone yourself. Limiting civil and criminal liability means that they know they're prescribing to you that you're going to use on somebody else, which is not usually how prescription medications work. I suppose this liability question is if I intervene and I am not able to reverse the overdose, I'm held harmless? Correct. No one's ever been sued for trying to do the right thing with access to naloxone. The Good Samaritan laws would protect you on that. Also, you can't hurt anybody with naloxone or Narcan. We'll talk about that too. It's foolproof. Cherie, when you go to a job site, for instance, and you said these are sometimes like abandoned homes, do do you have concerns about say, your safety or what might happen if you reversed an overdose. I'm just trying to think of what it means to be out on a job site and if you travel alone. Uh, I do often travel alone. And yeah, that came up too, is what if um, I accidentally hurt somebody? Um, You know, you do a lot of the what if games, but I think ultimately um, it just seems like the right thing to do. I think more and more people are carrying it. And I think it would be scarier if I were to walk into an abandoned job site, someone was there overdosing, and I couldn't do anything to help them. I think being in a powerless situation is very scary to me, but being able to take control of that, I'm kind of a control freak. So having that control to help somebody, I think I could live with myself a heck of a lot better than if I just left them there to die. That's honestly, I, I told you, Ryan, when we started, I have a friend who's a part-time EMT. We were at work one day, right on 18th and Blake, and we saw this person start to have a seizure. And they fell off of the bench into the gutter and got their head stuck between a tire and the curb. Oh, and there were all kinds of people around, and everybody just started freaking out. Nobody moved, but my friend leaped into action, ran over, grabbed this person and started administering aid. And I felt so helpless in that moment because I didn't know what to do. People were yelling, you know, it's that whole bystander thing. People were yelling, call 911, but nobody did it. So then I saw him take action. I stopped and grabbed my phone. So I think having the training, if something like that happens again, where I can actually know what to do would make me, A, be a better citizen and be able to help somebody, but not have that feeling of helplessness personally, which as you said, is terrible. Yes, the empowerment aspect of this. Thanks for saying that. Sheree, go ahead. And I also think kind of piggybacking on what you said, people are so quick to take out their phones and record something instead of doing something. And I think it's very important that more people learn about this. And I think it's fantastic. Um, I'm seeing a lot more news outlets getting on this. Um, which has actually made me pay attention because um, I don't use drugs. So this isn't something that, you know, was really on my radar, but I'm really learning a lot. You've been doing a lot of nodding, Lisa Rayville, as you've listened to Cherie and Jolie. Absolutely. I mean, you need to be acting. I mean, an opioid overdose is lack of oxygen. So even three to five minutes uh, could be problematic with somebody without oxygen. And when people are unhoused, they use outside in alleys in parks and in business bathrooms, which is why we try to push forward with overdose prevention sites as well. The reason we may come into contact with folks is that these are semi-public settings, I guess. Absolutely. It used to be cops coming up on people overdosing. Now it's 17-year-old baristas who are being re-triggered every day because they don't want to clean the bathroom before they go home because they've come up on somebody overdosing. So it's a larger community trauma issue. What would you say to someone who says, okay, I'll carry Narcan, Naloxone, but am I just reviving someone so that they could use again? Some people say that. Dead drug users do not have the opportunity for life. The only thing Narcan enables is breathing. And if it was your kid, you'd want us fighting. I would rather resuscitate somebody for them to go out and use again than watch them die. All right, our Narcan training begins in earnest after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. 
I think there is so much stress and anxiety permeating everybody's experience. It's the pandemic, the political climate, our recognition of the deep racial injustice within our country, our communities, our systems and structures, that as we work to address those things, we need to also find opportunities to provide a sense of stability and some things that you can count on. Our day-to-day -day work providing information that people can count on being grounded in facts is one of the most important things that we do. And the other thing is we recognize it's really important to provide moments of joy and moments of discovery. The impact of that is we hope that people are inspired and engaged. Support CPR in 2023 and beyond at CPR.org. And thank you. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Opioids, especially fentanyl, are killers. But it's possible to reverse an overdose with a nasal spray called Narcan. Two Coloradans let us take a training with them, Cherie Garcia-Cooper of Centennial and Jolie Weatherspoon of Westminster. Our trainer is Lisa Rayville, who leads the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. We sat around a table on which Rayville had placed a resuscitation doll. So let's begin the training, which can also prepare you if you want to carry the medication. So there's a difference between being really high and overdose. So really high is muscles become relaxed, speech is slow and slurred, sleepy looking and nodding, but will respond to a sternal rub. Everybody put your hand together in a fist, take your knuckles and go right here on your breastbone, do it kind of hard, it kind of hurts, right? If somebody pops up, they're not overdosing. Versus if they feel that. If they feel that, that and they rub. start talking to you or they kind of pop up, that's not an overdose. Okay. Versus an overdose is a deep snoring or gurgling. It's called the death rattle. They say if you've ever heard it, you'll never forget it. Very infrequent or no breathing. A pale or clammy skin. A heavy nod not responsive to that stimulation. A blue or gray skin tinge of the lips or fingertips because an opioid overdose is lack of oxygen. And a slow or no heartbeat. That's how you tell that it's That's an overdose. That's how you know it's an overdose. Cherie, you were nodding your head at the death rattle. Yes, I was actually with my mother-in-law um, when she passed away. She was in hospice and I took care of her. And I was holding her hand when she passed. And it's, you're right, you do not forget that sound. They call, I think they called it like fish out of water mm -hmm. sound, but it's a very shallow gurgling that any listeners who are hearing this will instantly like, yes, I know what that, mm -hmm. you're right, you don't forget it. And that sternal rub is a good, quick test mm -hmm. if you're in, in the field Correct. And, and witness something. So if somebody's laying like in a weird position and you're not sure, you want to like tap their foot, right, before you get into that sternal rub. If you tap their foot and they're like, get out of here, ma'am, you're like, oh, so sorry, let me move on with my day, take mm. care, versus the tapping foot isn't working, now you need to get down, you need to get that sternal rub. And should we be mindful of anyone listening who might have experienced an overdose or witnessed one? Absolutely. This can bring up a lot of feelings, much like people might have feelings around the death rattle as well. Yeah. It's been really scary. It's very scary to recognize and respond to an overdose, and it's very scary if you've lost somebody to overdose. So you have what looks like a recessa Andy here. Mm -hmm. Call him Buddy. Buddy, the torso and face mannequin. Yep. Okay. Yep. Here we go. And so here we go. What form, by the way, is the naloxone you're going to give us today? I'm going to give you the intranasal Narcan. It's going to go up the nostril and spray. This okay. whole training is really for you to put it up one nostril and spray. One nostril, not both. No, no. Okay. All right. So you're going to come up on somebody and go, sir, buddy, you doing okay, buddy? And you know at this point, you need to go ahead. Well, we You're do doing the sternal rub. I'm doing the sternal rub right uh, now. On, what is on his name again? Buddy. Buddy. And Buddy, Buddy is not responding. That's right. You doing okay? What's nice about Narcan is if there's no opioids in their system, it won't do anything to them. You cannot mess this up. So if you suspect it's an opioid overdose, go for it, babe. So Buddy, Buddy, you all right? Now, what you're going to do is you're going to come up on somebody. You're going to go underneath their neck, close their nose, and do two big breaths right off the top. One. Now you're going to take this. You're going to have a peel on the back of this. And what is this? This is their Narcan. Up one nostril and spray. If there's a couple people, you say, you, call 911. That way we know you're calling 911 and you know you're calling 911, right? 
Now we're gonna rescue breathe once every seven seconds for three minutes. You gotta give it time to work. So, one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, four, 1,000, five, 1,000, six, 1,000, seven, 1,000, breathe. Breathe into their mouth. And close the nose, right? You don't need to do CPR, the heart is fine, it's lack of oxygen. So you're doing that once every seven seconds for three minutes, give it time to work. Ideally, somebody can time you, right? Get out that cell phone, time me. You don't wanna do them back to back because that's gonna violently knock the opioid off the receptor. This is the kinder, gentler dose. If they're not awake after that three minutes and paramedics haven't arrived, you're gonna use the other dose. I'm gonna give you two doses in here. Each kit comes with two doses of Narcan. So you've administered one so far, Correct. one spray. Yep, and I'm, in a, I'm breathing once every seven seconds for three minutes. You gotta give it time to work. It's a commitment. It takes a while and time stands still. If they're not awake after that three minutes, use the other dose and continue rescue breathing until they wake up or paramedics arrive. If you do go to that second dose, do you need to go to the other nostril or does it not matter? Not necessarily. Sometimes you won't even remember which nostril you did first of all, but you definitely want to get it in that nostril. Sometimes when we've recognized and responded, you get a little dainty on that first one. Uh-uh. Get it in there. Get that spray going. Cherie, did you know that it would also entail mouth-to-mouth? -mouth? I didn't know that. I, I did not know that. And I am kind of like, we are in a pandemic. <laughs> so could you use, I used to be a lifeguard and they had like face shields. Is that something you can use, just kind of carry with the Narcan? Absolutely, you can purchase them on Amazon, but the breath is really important. We've got to go for it. Doing the Narcan alone without the breathing is not doing it fully. Correct. I, I realize, I hate to say this, I have mixed feelings about whether I'm the right person to do this. Talk to me. You can do it, babe. I believe in you. I know you can do it. Uh, we've recognized and responded to about 25 overdoses in and around our agency in the last 13 years. I've been the rescue breather for the last few. When it's happening, you get in there. You know what to do. Now you know what to do. And they're not going to die on your watch. Also, how would you keep track of three minutes in the real world under duress. Ideally, you have a couple people there and somebody is timing you on a phone, but that could be a magical world. You just have to give it time to work. Do not do these back to back. That violently knocks it off. You've got to give it time to work and that rescue breathing gives it time to work. Because what it's do is moving the opioid off the receptor and holding for 30 to 90 minutes while you rescue breathe and call 911. Could you tell me about the breaths again? I think I was just, thrown off, honestly, about breathing in someone's mouth? Absolutely. It's once every seven seconds for three minutes. So I can demonstrate that again. Part of that is so that you're able to regain your breath to be able to do this for three minutes. You don't want to keep breathing, 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 because then you're not going to be able to keep your breath. So I come up and I go. Holding the nose. Over the mouth. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, four, 1,000, five, 1,000, six, 1,000, seven, 1,000, breathe. One, 1,000, two, 1,000 for three minutes. Got it. Yeah, and it's intimate, but you're gonna wanna get in there. Could someone wake up and be dangerous? No, this is the kinder, gentler dose. What we've seen in the last 25 overdoses we've recognized and responded to, people come up confused but this is not the dose that EMT and paramedics give. They give way more. Um, so we haven't had anybody come up combative or anything like that. This is the kinder, gentler dose. In other words, there's a heavier dose that might elicit a different reaction, but it's only medical professionals that carry that? Correct, and it's not necessary. Yeah. It puts people in withdrawal, which is painful. So the more, the more Narcan you have on there, the more painful the withdrawal is, which is why we don't ask you doing the two off the top the two doses off the top. We don't encourage that. This is four milligrams. People wake up just kind of confused. Is there a certain temperature that you want to keep this? Is it something I can keep in my car, in my iPad bag? So when I go in and out of job sites, does it have to be temperature controlled? Ideally, it's between 59 and 77 degrees. That's mildly magical, <laughs> right? We ask that you don't keep it in your car, but mm. keep it on you, maybe in a purse or a bag you take around. If it's kept in your car for a couple days, we completely understand. It won't do too much to it, but you really want to try to keep it between that 59 and 77 degrees. Most of my folks are unhoused, so it does have that temperature fluctuation. We've never seen any issues with that, but just for you, you'll want to keep it really on you in like a purse or a bag. One more question. Does it expire? 
Good question. It does expire. Yours is expiring February 2025. Hopefully you never have to use it. We did pass legislation a couple years ago. You can use expired Narcan. Some people just don't feel comfortable. However, it's good for years and years and years and years. Mm. Um, if you want to come back in February 2025 and you haven't used it and you want to trade it out with me, I'll take your expired to give out and then I'll give you new Narcan. What does self-care for the person who administers Narcan look like in the days and weeks after an event like this? Sure, it can be really scary to recognize and respond. After somebody has responded and gone away with EMT, you are gonna wanna check in on that person. That person may be you. I do have to say, uh, I was a rescue breather for somebody a couple overdoses ago, and every time I closed my eyes for a week, I saw his face, and I'm in the industry, and I want people overdosing with me because I know how to recognize and respond. So people definitely need to take care of themselves. Oh, you okay? I'm working on the front lines of the worst overdose crisis we've ever been in. Overdose is the leading cause of death of our unhoused neighbors. We're not okay. In any situation, no matter if they are responding to Narcan or not, we're always calling 911, correct? We're always getting the medics involved. If you're a third party, I would encourage that. If you're someone who uses drugs, oftentimes there's some barriers to calling 911, and we train people like that a little differently that I won't be doing on the radio. Okay. Now, if someone is hearing this thinking, I'd like to be trained, uh, what would you tell them? This is the training. You just got trained. There is nothing more to this training. All of your listeners that paid attention to this entire segment are now trained. Lisa, thank you. Jolie, Cherie, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And I would just like to add, because I feel like many people in Colorado are allergy sufferers. If you've ever used saline nasal spray or Afrin or anything like that, that is exactly how this works. Yeah, it's a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was, I mean, honestly, I don't know if I can say this on the radio. I thought it was going to be like Pulp Fiction in the... <laughs> oh, know, that, the, that sort of the needle, violent like, needle in yes, the chest. Yes. So this is so much more user-friendly. Yep. Cherie Garcia-Cooper of Centennial and Jolie Weatherspoon of Westminster learning to carry and administer Narcan at the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver back in August. Its executive director is Lisa Rayville. We've laid out everything we learned at CPR.org, where there's also a map of pharmacies that carry the overdose reversal medication. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.